in early September when I saw President Putin in China, uh, I felt that the most effective way to ensure that that didn't happen was to talk to him directly and tell him to cut it out, and there were going to be some serious consequences if he didn't. Uh, and in fact, we did not see further tampering of the election process. But the leaks through WikiLeaks had already occurred. Our goal continues to be to send a clear message to Russia or others not to do this to us, because we can do stuff to you. That was Barack Obama in December of 2016, shortly before Trump took over as president. I'm Grant Burningham. Welcome to Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. In previous episodes, I've asked what Obama knew about Russian hacking and why he didn't do more to discourage it. As we've heard with Michael Itzikoff, who covered the story, and with Jake Sullivan, who was part of the Clinton campaign, there's a long answer there. But one of the most disturbing parts is that American officials were afraid that things would spiral out of control and turn into a full-on cyber war. That would end with Russia targeting our power grid, shutting it down, and then working to keep us from getting it back up. Today I'm talking to Michael Daniel. He was director of the White House Cyber Policy under Obama. He testified to Congress that he prepared a variety of responses to Russian hacking, but he was told to stand down as the Obama administration tried diplomacy. Reportedly, those included everything from leaks about Putin's finances, to a cyber war exercise, to actually knocking some Russian websites offline. Michael Daniels' position was later eliminated under Donald Trump. Michael Daniel is now president of the Cyber Threat Alliance, a nonprofit that helps companies share threats in cyberspace. Michael Daniel, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Ballots this morning. Great. Thank you for having me. So let's go back to your time at the Obama administration. Under the Obama administration, there was, I think it's safe to say, the hack of the decade or maybe of the century, although the century is young. When did you first start to notice that something was going on with the Russians? Well, I think that it's very interesting to put this in, in context, which is that we had long understood and tracked Russian cyber malicious cyber activity directed at the United States. From the time I came into the position in 2012, this was a concern. But typically prior to 2014, the Russians focused on conducting what we would consider to be sort of traditional espionage just using cyber means. And so when you detected them, they typically would vanish. They would go away and go silent, and you'd have to hunt for them again. That began to change in 2014 as we began to notice the Russians being much more aggressive and being willing to take more risks, being willing to stay on networks even when they were detected, and in some cases even try to stay on networks even when we were trying to actively eject them from there. So it was really part of this path that we were on of watching and seeing the Russians become much more aggressive in their use of cyber operations as a tool of national power that really frames up what happened in 2016. We fully expected to see Russian espionage activities directed at the presidential campaigns because the Russians conduct a lot of intelligence operations against the U.S. What was new was the then subsequent release of that information out into the public domain and the use of the information to try to influence the election. And so that was really in the late June, early July of 2016 that we realized that we were not 
simply dealing with the traditional espionage, but we're dealing with an entirely different type of activity. Why don't you take me to 2014? Was there a specific incident that jumped out? I can't really discuss the details, but the Russians, they did not follow their typical pattern. And we began to see an uptick in activity and less concern about stealth on their part and more concern about gaining access. Um, and so it was, a, it was a shift in Russian behavior. We get to 2016. We start to see that states' voting systems are actually being targeted. What do we know about that at this point? Well, what we know is that the Russians clearly conducted a very broad-based reconnaissance effort to see what the vulnerabilities were in those uh, in that electoral infrastructure and to probably map out what those systems looked like and to think about ways that they could gain access to those systems and then what they could do uh, with that access. I spoke to one representative who's on the House Intelligence Committee who told me that in some ways these attacks on voting systems were so brazen that there was a theory that the Russians wanted to get caught and wanted to make an incident out of that. Well, that's certainly a possibility. It's always very difficult to know exactly what they intended. That is certainly a plausible theory that uh, some of that was actually designed to, in fact, catch our attention and to say, yes, we can do this, and if you don't back off in some other areas, say Ukraine or Syria or some other uh, policy interest of the Russians, that we will take you know, steps to disrupt your, your election. It certainly could have been signaling on their part. It could have also just been reconnaissance for them to set themselves up to be able to do something either in 2016 or down the road. At some point, you come up with the idea of countermeasures against Russian attacks, and you've testified that you were told to stand down by the Obama administration and not pursue any offensive action against Russia. What prompted you to come up with those options? Well, in many ways, that's, that's the job that I had on the National Security Council staff. As an advisor to the president, as the person in charge of cybersecurity policy across the, the U.S. government at the time, that was my job, was to create options for the president and other senior cabinet officials to consider. I, I should be clear that the efforts to protect our electoral system and to shore up state voting systems and other things like that, that continued unabated. And ultimately, we did end up engaging the Russians to some degree diplomatically, but the focus was on the diplomatic efforts and on our defensive efforts. And I know this is a little bit sticky because you couldn't get into specifics when you were testifying. And there has been some reporting that some of the things you looked at doing were hacking back at Russian websites and that sort of thing. Could you give me an idea of what the range of options would have been for something like that? Well, our job was to actually prepare as broad a range of options as possible and to present the pros and cons and to clearly identify the risks and benefits that would be attendant to any of those options. And so really, it would range everything from further diplomatic engagement to potential law enforcement action to use of cyber capabilities. And each one of those probably would have come with a, if you will, sort of a low, medium, and high version of those options so that you, know, you could 
have the policymakers appropriately calibrate the risk. And that's really what you want your your departments and agencies and your NSC folks doing is actually creating those kinds of options so that policymakers have some choices and have the ability to kind of tailor a, a response package to the conditions. So there's one part of the response which has been reported on, which I, if if you can't talk about this, I understand, but there was a cyber exercise which you proposed doing. I'm wondering if you can give me any details on what a cyber war exercise would have looked like. Well, I can't really speak to the specifics of that, but in general, if you sort of think about it, we conduct military exercises with NATO, for example, all the time, where you put troops into the field and you have them simulate a combat exercise, right? It would be sort of the similar idea in cyberspace to assemble the cyber forces, for example, that Cyber Command has, along with other departments and agencies uh, across the government, and simulate what a response to a cyber incident might be. And in this case, rather than sort of keeping it secret, you would actually try to provide some coverage uh, and some publicity to that exercise so that everyone knows uh, that it's occurring. And then perhaps you even set it up in a way such that you would expect that foreign intelligence services would be able to detect and understand that it's going on. It would be sending a signal, in other words, that we're ready and able to uh, conduct these kind of operations, the same way that physical uh, military exercises send that signal in the physical world. Some of the reporting around this has said that one of the reasons you were told to stand down on these Russian countermeasures was there were concerns that the cyber war would escalate and even that Russia might end up targeting our power grid. I know that's something that James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, raised. Is that a real possibility? Certainly. The the problem of escalation is a very real one in cyberspace, and it's one that I worry about a lot. The potential for just collateral damage occurring in a way that actually prompts a response that then spirals out of control. I think that's a very a significant probability that that could occur. Now, the other part of your question is what could be affected by that? And certainly the power grid has long been a target of a lot of different adversaries because of its uh, interconnectedness, because of our dependence on it, and because of the fact that it is often accessible you know, from the internet. Are we really that naked as a country? We are very vulnerable as a country, as are most countries. Uh, we have a long way to go to improve our cybersecurity and to improve our resilience because ultimately you can never drive the risk of a cyber incident to zero. So we need to be ready to respond and to recover from and be able to operate through incidents when they do occur. And just so people realize, if if someone takes down the power, this isn't just a minor inconvenience. It could be absolutely devastating for a country not to have power for even days. I mean, absolutely. Look at the difficulties that we have here in this country when we lose power for an extended period of time. If you think about the uh, impact that it had on Puerto Rico to lose power. And now imagine that you've actually got an adversary who is actively trying to prevent you from restoring that capability. And there are other things that could be done too. You know, the transportation grid, uh, our financial services industry, healthcare systems, all of those are interconnected. And I don't even think that we really fully understand how all of those systems are interconnected. They are 
chaotic and complex in the mathematical senses of those of those terms, and we really don't have a good grasp on how all of the interconnections actually work. We've definitely seen a hot battle in cyberspace in terms of the information war, but we haven't seen one that goes beyond that. Is that something that can last? So I think it's almost inevitable that at some point during a physical conflict in the real world, you will also see the use of cyber capabilities to augment or uh, shape that conflict. In fact, we've already seen that in Ukraine and the Russian actions to, for example, turn off the power in certain parts of Ukraine for a little while in both December of 2015 and in December of 2016. So I think that it's almost inevitable that you will see the that kind of activity in conflicts uh, expand as nations ex- continue to experiment with how to use cyber capabilities as an element of national power. In some ways, and tell me if this analogy is terrible, but I feel like we're living in the 1950s and everybody has nuclear weapons, only there's been no treaties and no discussion of the fact that we have nuclear weapons, and it's sort of just this undeclared Cold War in cyberspace. That's a, It's an interesting analogy. I tend to use the pre-World War I time period as an analogy of, if you think back to that period, you have a lot of different nation states, a lot of different agreements in the background there's a lot of weaponry that's actually emerging that people don't really understand what it is, and there's misconceptions about how weapons are going to actually operate. In the pre-World War I days, there's this misconception that the offense has the advantage um, and that if you, uh, if you don't use it very quickly, you're going to, to lose it. And I feel like we're in a similar time period now with our understanding of what we can do through cyberspace. But your point about the 1950s is – is equally well taken that we also don't have the institutions in place to to manage some of the friction that's occurring. You know, traditionally we've used distance and borders to manage the friction between nation states. I mean, it doesn't always work, but that's one of the ways that we've managed that friction. And now, you know, cyberspace pretty much sort of eliminates distance and it radically alters borders. So uh, we need some new institutions and ways of managing that friction, and we haven't we haven't invented them yet. What keeps you up at night? Primarily, I think a lot about escalation and collateral damage, meaning what happens if we have another, for example, NotPetya, but on an even bigger scale. So NotPetya was a piece of malware that uh, was released. Uh, it was aimed specifically at companies that were doing business with Ukraine. Um, and it was really targeted at Ukraine. Um, however, it ended up having an impact on all sorts of other companies that only had a tangential relationship to Ukraine. Um, and, you know, for example, it ended up affecting a hospital system in the northeast part of the United States that really its only connection to Ukraine was it happened to use the same pharmaceutical supplier as supplied a hospital in Ukraine. And the malware spread through that pharmaceutical supplier to this hospital system. So you could imagine something like that happening on an, on a much bigger scale. So that's that kind of that collateral damage idea that you weren't even the target, but you just happened to get hit by something that was aimed at somebody else. So assuming that Russians are less active during this midterm, or at least not pursuing the, the large-scale hacks, 
are we going to be in any way a hardened target for 2020? Is Russia going to be able to do the same sort of campaign hacks and leaks and information war that it was able to do in 2016? Well, I think they will certainly try. I think in some ways we will be a harder target just because people are more aware of it. And I certainly think that all of the, for example, all of the state-level officials that I've had any contact with have been very dedicated to continuing to improve the cybersecurity of our electoral infrastructure. If you look at the actions that Facebook and Twitter and the other social media companies have taken to improve their ability to identify disinformation, I think if as long as we keep the focus on it and work towards uh, improving our capabilities to push back against it, we will be a harder target. But this is going to be a very long uh, process. And in some ways, the challenge of being an open society is figuring out how to deal with these kinds of information operations. But I think we can do it. I mean, if you if you look back at, say, advertising from, you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century, it always seems a little bit kind of crazy to the modern eye, like who would be fooled by that? And part of that is because we're so used to filtering advertising now. We get it from such a young age, and we learn. We need to learn those same skills in a lot more of the information domain uh, now that this concept of the disinformation campaigns and, and those things are now much more present on the Internet. Let me ask you about the inverse of that. Um, we've seen these tactics. When... I shouldn't say when. Do you think we will see the United States start to use them against other countries? You know, I think that we've never been particularly comfortable as a country using what we would call information operations in the way that many countries use them. Now, don't get me wrong. We do do information operations. That's what Voice of America is. That's what a lot of the public diplomacy is. But we tend to think of it much more as an above board, like this is the United States talking. I think that most Americans have always been very uncomfortable with the idea that our government would be out hiding the hand of the U.S. government behind activities and not acknowledging that it was the U.S. conducting you know, those kinds of, of information operations. So while I suspect that we will play around with that tool some, I think that it will probably not be something that we are ever very comfortable with as a country using because it just doesn't quite fit with our value system. Uh, last question, Michael. What's your favorite hacking movie? <laughs> actually, Sneakers is one of my favorites. Uh, it's a pretty old one, but I actually really like that movie because it was so early on and it exemplified uh, so much of that hacking culture, but also what the potential for uh, hacking could do. Although I will say that my my all-time favorite just scene is uh, the lesson of why you should never leave default passwords in place actually comes from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is from 1982, because, you know, they are able to hack into the Reliance mainframe and lower their shields because they left the default password in place. Michael Daniel, thank you so much for coming on Bots and Bouts this morning. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's it for Bots and Bouts this week. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Michael Daniel and to my producer, Leah Hitchens. Thank you for listening. I'm Grant Burningham.